Hello, friends. Today's copyright-expired song is In the Little Red Schoolhouse by Al Wilson and James Brennan, but we're not here to talk about In the Little Red Schoolhouse because as I record this, all the world is talking about Will Smith of Wild Wild West slapping Chris Rock at the Oscars, which is a weird fucking sentence, but here we are. That is the big news. The war in Ukraine is taking a back seat. I actually read this morning they are... It, the war's on pause. They're having a brief ceasefire so that everyone can give their Will Smith, Chris Rock takes. And since this is about comedy and about uh, getting slapped by the Fresh Prince while doing comedy, I thought people might be interested to hear my personal understanding of what the rules are regarding when you can make fun of somebody's physical appearance. These are the rules as I understand them from conversations with other comedians, meaning comedy writers and stand-up comics alike. We would talk about this in the writer's room sometimes at Last Week Tonight. These rules are, they're very much, you know, kind of, as I understand them, these are not universally practiced or even universally agreed upon, but this is what I understand to be the rules and the rules that I tried to follow, at least in the later years at Last Week Tonight, as I was figuring out what the fuck I was doing. So, importantly... The rule is not never make fun of someone's physical appearance. That would be extremely limiting. We use these jokes a lot, especially in late night. There's a lot of this format. You go, Texas Senator and blah, 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 Ted Cruz. I think Stephen Colbert kind of pioneered that on the old Colbert Report. The other format is Ted Cruz seen here, blah, 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 and then you make fun of something that he's doing in the photo. The format I really kind of wish would expire <laughs> is... Ted Cruz, who looks like X fucked Y, and, and X and Y never never actually look like the person. It's always just like, Ted Cruz, who looked like a slap bracelet fucked a watermelon, and you're like, what the fuck does that mean? But the audience goes for it. It's always the audience's fault. That's my main principle as a comedy writer. It's always the audience's fault. Anyway, there are a lot of appearance jokes in comedy, and why wouldn't there be? You make fun of people for things they say, for things that they do. Why wouldn't you also make fun of them for choices about their appearance that they make? And that is the key distinction. Here is the big all-caps principle that I would like to highlight. You can make fun of a person's physical appearance when you are making fun of a choice that they made. So in this context, Jada Pinkett Smith is bald because of alopecia, she did not choose that. I do not think Chris Rock should have told that joke. I don't know if he knew that she has alopecia. But I don't think he should have made that joke. I also obviously don't think he should be slapped for it. That should kind of go without saying. But you can make fun of people for choices that they make. So a great example of this would be a guy who is on Twitter, <laughs> whose opinions I don't particularly like, uh, Nathan J. Robinson. If you're not familiar with Nathan J. Robinson, then you are living a richer, better life than I am. Uh, but you might want to Google him. Nathan J. Robinson, he makes some really aggressive choices about <laughs> what he wears and how he presents himself. And because he is making those choices, I personally feel that it is completely inbounds when people call him, for example, Plantation Riddler or Incel Willy Wonka. That is all, I think, inbounds because nobody wrestled him to the ground and made him wear a purple suit and an ascot. That's a choice he made. You put you so. Now, I think that the you can make fun of people for choices that they make principle. It's a good one. I'd give it a 9 out of 10. It's pretty clear. Unfortunately, there is sometimes some gray area. So let's talk about the gray area. It is not always clear 
what is a choice someone has made about their physical appearance and what is not. The one that always flummoxed me, honestly, was Kellyanne Conway. It was She's kind of right at the ship, by the way. She looks like a normal person now. But circa 2016, uh, Kellyanne Conway, well, she certainly had a style. And it's kind of hard to tell, like, what's like a, an aggressive choice that she's made and is therefore in bounds? And what is just like, like, you don't want to make fun of somebody for just maybe being a bad dresser or having like a weird haircut because then you're the asshole. And by the way comedy writers making fun of people for being bad dressers and having bad haircuts. I can't think of a better example of people living in glass houses who shouldn't throw stones. But you don't want to make fun of somebody for run-of-the-mill, you know, weird haircuts and stuff, but <laughs> then when people make aggressive choices, I with Kellyanne Conway, I kind of felt like, you're daring me to do this. It's the elephant in the room, Kellyanne. And I don't know. Some of it is certainly her choice. So sometimes it's hard to tell. And the other thing that should probably be said is Let's not kid ourselves, this rule was absolutely not evenly applied. You are a thousand times more likely to make fun of someone for their physical appearance, at least a late night show is, for their physical appearance if they're a man than if they're a woman. This is partly because, though I believe the principle is, hey, if they made the choice, it's all fair game. Other people think the rule is never make fun of a woman, period. I personally find that extremely condescending. It's like, oh, you're so fragile that we can't possibly make fun of you. I I think it's insulting. I think the rules should be universal. Also, I don't like making exceptions to principles for no good reason. That weakens them. But because some people feel the rule is never make fun of a woman, then a lot of people in comedy will go, just don't bother. Just don't do it. Just scrub the joke. Just do something else. So you're much more likely to go after a man. You're much likely to go after a man you don't like. And also, <laughs> some of the Last Week Tonight writers, we noticed this after a few years. We're way more likely to go after an old guy we don't like was like the most likely target. Sometimes, and we, I think we got away from these in the later years, but we'd have jokes where like, oh, he looks like shit. It's like, yeah, he's 85. He's 85. That is a classic thing you cannot choose is being all wrinkled and stuff when you're 85. So I think it would be better if the rules were universally applied. But as with all things in comedy, we are figuring this shit out on the fly. Some jackass talking on a podcast about what's in bounds and what's not is kind of the closest we have to, like, a high council on this stuff. There are no memos passed down from the Writers Guild about what the rules are. So we figure it out as we go. And the last caveat that I have to mention... Readers of I Might Be Wrong will know that I have a special exemption to the don't make fun of people for stuff they can't help rule when it comes to Donald Trump and fatness, because Donald Trump is the single greatest violator of the don't make fun of someone for being overweight principle on the planet, and I don't feel that an egregious violator of a rule should also be protected by that rule. So in the case of Trump only, I, as often as possible, point out that he is a fat, 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 fat man, which he is. So that was a long intro. And now's the part where I say hello and welcome to the I Might Be Wrong podcast, which is the audio version of stuff you can find at imightbewrong.substack.com. Please go, please subscribe, please uh, share the articles with your friends. If you don't want to pay six bucks a month for a subscription, I get it. I've been there myself. If you can spread the articles to your friends, that's sort of a form of payment that's not money, kind of like Bitcoin. It's not money, but it's something, so that's much appreciated. Today's episode is about the war. I just got an alert on my phone saying the war is back on. It's about the war in Ukraine, and it's called 
The next time sanctions dislodge a regime will be the first time sanctions dislodge a regime. I wanted to write this one because though I feel that the United States and our allies have mostly pressed the right buttons in response to Ukraine, I'm glad we imposed sanctions. I'm glad that we're not in a shooting war with Russia right now. But I worry about mission creep as the war continues, especially when we get to an end phase. And by the way, I wrote this one before Biden ended his speech saying this man, Putin, must not remain in power. I think that was a really big gaffe. I think that was a very bad thing to say. Absolutely the wrong thing to say in that moment. Of course, the White House and the State Department walked it back because that is not the button we need to push right now. Big mistake, but exactly what I'm talking about. People follow their passions and maybe lose sight of what's possible and what's not. Let's not tilt at windmills when we get to the end phase of this thing. So the article is called, The Next Time Sanctions Dislodge a Regime Will Be the First Time Sanctions Dislodge a Regime. Subheading, What's Likely to Happen and What's Not. So I have two somewhat conflicting thoughts in my head. The first is that Vladimir Putin is terrified of being overthrown. That belief comes from numerous articles saying as much, plus the fact that he appears to be conducting the war from a special (laughs) leadership Heidi bunker, with even top officials being granted only limited access. His fears, of course, are not without basis. Google searches for Putin coup have skyrocketed. I would wager that a lot of those searches are Putin Googling himself. If you look up the Google data for a search term, which is a thing you can do, and you can even do it for search terms that are not your own name. If you look up the data for Putin coup, they have, of course, skyrocketed, skyrocketed in the last month or so. So that's the first thought. He is terrified of being overthrown. My second thought is that there is virtually no chance that sanctions will cause Putin to be overthrown. I believe this because of the Olympus Mons-sized pile of evidence suggesting that sanctions simply are not potent enough to trigger regime change. It would be great if they were. It would be awesome if we could oust a dictator just by tweaking trade rules. But that idea is thought by many, including me, to be a form of magical thinking. In American politics, the fecklessness of this tactic has been most vividly illustrated by the embargo against Cuba, imposed in the early 60s, which failed to remove Castro, and Castro, in fact, proceeded to rub salt in the wound by living to an age that would be old for a redwood tree. In fact, Castro died, not a lot of people know this, when he failed to land a motocross jump on his 140th birthday. Yet another dictator felled by a motorcycle trick. What's that they say? The leaders of revolutions die doing motorcycle tricks? Something like that. Now, the one exception to the sanctions don't cause regime change argument is typically thought to be South Africa. In any discussion of sanctions effectiveness, South Africa is going to come up. I keep hearing it over and over and over on podcasts and articles They say, oh, it didn't work in Iraq, but South Africa, South Africa is always the pro example. In my opinion, South Africa is actually a bit of an odd case. I think the lessons from that example 
that apply to Vladimir Putin's regime are very limited. And more decisions about sanctions lay ahead of us. And I think it might help us to think about what sanctions can do and what they can't do, what they're likely to do and what they're not likely to do, and to try to avoid a situation in which we're expecting sanctions to do things that history suggests they just cannot do. So prepare yourself for the least impressive bit of credentialing in the history of podcasts. I'm about to say something that should impress you the minimum amount it is possible to be impressed, which is, my master's thesis was about sanctions. <laughs> That's true. My master's thesis was about sanctions. I reread my thesis recently, and here's my takeaway. My takeaway is, never read anything that you wrote in school. Never. In fact, never reflect on any creative thing that you've ever done, ever, period, I think. All of my old stand-up makes me cringe. There are episodes of Last Week Tonight that make me want to just step straight out of a window like Tom and Baratheon in Game of Thrones. All creative endeavors are basically time-release public embarrassments. The best thing to do is to adopt the attitude of an action movie star walking away from an explosion without looking back. Do that. Just stride ever forward without pausing even for a moment to observe the flaming wreckage of self-humiliation behind you. That's what I took away from rereading my thesis. But let's talk about some of the more subtle points. So because my thesis was about sanctions, and because it was written in 2004, it talked about South Africa quite a bit. South Africa was then, in 2004, and is still now the big example of sanctions contributing to regime change. Now, I think the fact that a second example has not popped up in the last 18 years is itself a little bit of evidence suggesting that sanctions have their limits. The world has changed a lot in the last two decades, but sanctions discourse is basically the same as it was back when Nokia dominated the cell phone market and America was neck deep in the global war on carbs, as we were in 2004. Of course, there's reason to believe that sanctions did hasten the end of apartheid. I wouldn't dispute that. By the 1980s, much of the Western world was appalled by South Africa's institutionalized system of race-based discrimination. Of course, the Western world had abandoned such barbaric practices long, long ago, meaning a decade or two. A coalition of European nations got together to impose sanctions on South Africa in 1985. The U.S. followed suit in 1986. It's worth noting that politics might partially explain why those sanctions loom so large in our memory. It was a highly political issue. It got very politicized very quickly because it was a wedge issue for the right. Thatcher and Reagan opposed sanctions. Congress actually overrode Reagan's veto. Hard to imagine that these days. And not just because Ronald Reagan is no longer alive. But they overrode Reagan's veto. So the sanctions, which were widely popular, became a bludgeon for the left against conservative leaders in both the U.S. and the U.K., Reagan and Thatcher. In fact, the sanctions talking point was so effective that most political scientists cite it as the reason why Michael Dukakis rocketed to a remarkable 111 
electoral votes in the 1988 election. You don't win 10 states unless you got some seriously popular issues behind you. Well done, President Dukakis. South Africa's isolation was not just economic. It also extended to music and sports, musicians. That's musicians, not magicians. Magicians were asleep at the wheel, quite frankly. But musicians organized to stop playing concerts in South Africa, which might not sound like a big deal, but if you are familiar with the priorities of white baby boomers, and I was raised by such people, then you know that denying them access to Peter Gabriel is kind of like keeping bamboo from a panda. They sort of can't live without it. South Africa also missed several Olympics due to their refusal to integrate their team. They were excluded from the first two Rugby World Cups in 1987 and 1991. And by the way, when I was researching my thesis, I read an oral history of the end of apartheid, and I cannot tell you how often people talked about that rugby ban. That book was two-thirds about rugby. Apparently, <laughs> you can shame South Africans at the UN. You can cut them off economically. You can make them pariahs. They will take all of that with a plum. But if you deny them the right to watch 30 beefcakes in booty shorts toss a ball around a cow pasture, they will not abide that. From what I can tell, the rugby sanctions made a difference. That oral history that I read also made another thing perfectly clear, and that is that among white South Africans, and that is an important caveat, among white South Africans, South Africa was something kind of resembling a democracy. Certainly democracy-ish among white people. Now, the National Party was dominant. They were the only party to rule during apartheid, but they were not completely dominant. They actually lost the popular vote four times, including in F.W. de Klerk's first election as National Party leader in 1989. F.W. de Klerk, of course, is the guy who sort of goes on to be South Africa's Gorbachev. He's the leader who gives up the ghost but the National Party won, but they were not completely dominant. They were also extremely business-oriented, so their governing causes belli definitely eroded as sanctions started to bite. And let's note that the Mandela government was ultimately installed via negotiations and elections, not via a bloody coup. F.W. de Klerk, once he was out of power, won a Nobel Peace Prize and ended up living out his days peacefully. He lived to the ripe old age of 85 and only died when he, like Castro, failed to land a motorcycle jump. How many leaders have been claimed by motocross? Dozens? Hundreds? I do wish Biden would give up motocross. It's just not safe. The point is, the situation de Klerk and the National Party faced in South Africa was a radically different situation from the situation in, say, Castro's Cuba, or Saddam Hussein's Iraq, or Nicolas Maduro's Venezuela, or Putin's Russia, to name just a few targets of sanctions. The political environment in those countries resembles the movie Misery way more than it resembles democracy. It is worth asking if there are substantially any lessons that we can take from South Africa that apply to such radically different situations. And one reason to answer that question with a no is that Sanctions were just one of many factors that helped end apartheid. After all, some would argue that the main reason that apartheid ended was, you know, Nelson fucking Mandela. 
Remember that guy? Him. And also Desmond Tutu and Steve Biko and all the South Africans who fought against the system of apartheid for decades. It does seem awfully America-centric to give the credit to the E Street Band who organized... The Musicians Boycott, and I am willing to give the E Street Band, and Steve Van Sant in particular, credit for a great many things, including Born to Run and giving The Sopranos an extra dash of authentic New Jersey edge. But if we're talking about what toppled apartheid, it seems like Mandela's name should come up before, say, Hall and Oates. No offense to Hall and Oates, who are certainly the Nelson Mandela of early 80s power pop. But Nelson Mandela is the Nelson Mandela of South Africa. So that's another thing that existed in South Africa that doesn't exist in other places. Dictatorships have fledgling civil societies pretty much by definition. Governments that get crosswise with the international community tend to also be governments that retain power through a combination of propaganda violence, and big-ass paintings of the dear leader's face. I don't know why that third component is so required, but it clearly is because they all do it. Think about Russia, for example. Putin, Putin is a killer. He all but certainly ordered the murder of Boris Nemtsov and also Alexander Levinko and many others whose names we will never know. He has jailed his main opponent, Alexei Navalny, and also scores and scores of Russians who protested the war in Ukraine. There is probably literally nothing that he won't do to hold on to power. There will be no F.W. de Klerk-style soft retirement for Vladimir Putin. His story ends either with prison or a bullet to the head or clinging to power against most of the world's wishes to a depressingly late date. I do think that it's awfully cavalier for Westerners to inflict economic pain on a country and then tell its people basically simple. All you need to do is overthrow your dictator to make it stop. Let's recognize that overthrowing an autocrat is very, 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 very hard. It happens only rarely, and some of the modern examples that we thought we witnessed like Egypt and the USSR, now look like changes spurred by popular unrest but actually enacted through intra-government maneuvering. Actually toppling a country's power structure takes an incredible amount of bravery, not to mention coordination. Speaking for myself, I consider any organizational project more complex than a six-person bachelor party, far too complex to even attempt. I don't know how anyone ever overthrows a government. I could not get six dudes on the same flight to fucking Vegas. If Putin gets ousted, it will probably be by his inner circle. Retired CIA officer Stephen Hall wrote in a column for the Washington Post called Putin doesn't fear a coup by oligarchs, but he should fear his fellow spies. Stephen L. Hall wrote that the main threat to Putin comes from the Siloviki. Am I pronouncing that wrong? I'm sure that I am. The Siloviki, the Russian security and military elite. The Siloviki are, to heavily paraphrase Hall's words, a scary-ass bunch of fuckers. Putin was, is, a Siloviki himself. If Russia's security services were to topple Putin, it would not be people power ushering in a new era of love and freedom. It would be kleptocrats knifing the guy they decided was doing kleptocracy wrong. <laughs> 
I would still be in the market for that, but that is not really the type of revolution that people write smash Broadway musicals about. Of course, if it happened, it would probably end the war. So again, if it happens, I will take it. The likely mechanism that will be used if Putin is toppled is worth keeping in mind as we decide which sanctions to add, which sanctions to drop, and which sanctions to keep in place. Different sanctions do different things. Some, like for example freezing bank accounts or seizing assets, those target individuals. Others, like cutting Russia off from the SWIFT system or ending the import of Russian oil, those hurt Russia more generally. Now, personally, I see no reason to tap the brakes on sanctions that target Putin and his cronies for as long as Putin is in power. Anyone, in my opinion, connected to that regime deserves the harshest punishment we can dish out. And I also support the broad-based sanctions right now because they were an attempt at deterrence and also they put pressure on Russia to end the war. But that's now. There may come a time when we should consider rolling back the more blunt-edged sanctions, even if Putin is still in power. When Russian troops slink back across the border in defeat, and I'm increasingly convinced that some version of that will eventually happen, though I wouldn't predict if it will be in weeks, months, or years. But when that does eventually happen, it will probably be time to end the sanctions that mostly hit the Russian people. It will be tempting to keep all of the sanctions in place to try to oust Putin, but we should recognize that that is just not something that history suggests is likely to happen. And it may seem weird that I'm talking about stuff that hasn't happened yet, and if it does, it'll be well in the future, but I am purposely not recording this podcast <laughs> during election season. My fear, to just lay my cards on the table here, is that as we approach November, as things get increasingly crazy in American politics, as they always do, as that happens, the situation in Ukraine will change, but then sanctions will linger just due to momentum. Republicans will call any Democrat who suggests altering the sanctions package weak, and Democrats, as we sometimes do, will try to prove that we're not weak by acting like Rambo-level uberhawks. That is a thing that we do. The result in that scenario will be that sanctions that were intended to keep Russia on its own side of the border will morph into measures to try to oust Vladimir Putin, even though they are about as likely to do that as a bake sale is to solve global warming. The big question, the question that was asked in my thesis, the question that you hear come up on podcasts and in articles all the time, is do sanctions work? Well, define sanctions and work. Success depends on multiple factors, including what's the situation? As George Kennan, or maybe it was a tribe called Quest once said, what's the scenario? What are your goals? What are the sanctions? There are different types of sanctions. They do different things. And, of course, the big question that none of us like to talk about, simply, how's your luck? Will they work or not? I don't know. Depends on whether or not you get lucky. As much as we would like to imagine that we are all chess grandmasters shrewdly executing a carefully considered strategy, we are actually much more like a cat with its head stuck in a Kleenex box 
flailing around in the dark with no real understanding of what's happening or how to get what we want. And if you go to the written version of the article, yes, God, yes, I have a link to a cat <laughs> with its head stuck in a Kleenex box. Do you ever think I would say that and not link to it? What kind of an asshole do you think I am? I'd sum it up like this. Sanctions are a lot like medicine. They can have an effect, and that effect can range from very little to very big. Sometimes the effect will be big enough to achieve the desired outcome, but other times it simply won't. It all depends on the patient, the dose, the disease, a million factors that we cannot quantify, and of course, luck, 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 luck. There is no doubt in my mind that Putin would like sanctions to end. He would also surely like to not be strung up in the town square like Mussolini. That's something Putin and I have in common. Sanctions do threaten Putin's rule some non-zero amount, but other factors, especially losing the war, for example, without a doubt present a far greater threat. History suggests that sanctions by themselves probably will not be enough to deal Putin the brutal ousting he deserves, and we shouldn't see them as a means to that end. We would probably have a better shot at eliminating Putin if we could just somehow, some way, get him to try motocross. And that's the episode. Apologies to Al Wilson and James A. Brennan and your song, in the Little Red Schoolhouse, parentheses, back that ass up. I did not talk about your song today, but rest assured, I think it is tinny and sucks, and I hope to crap all over your art from the future at a later date. I appreciate everyone who listened to this episode, in spite of the fact that it is not about the important thing going on in the world, which is, of course, two millionaires in tuxedos having a slap fight. Thank you very much for listening. In spite of that, I will be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you very much for listening, and bye for now.